Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. You're listening to Megatech, a special episode of Babbage, diving into the future of technology that will shape our world in the 21st century. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist. In this show, we've gathered together experts from across artificial intelligence. All else being equal, the best combination is going to be a computational system working with a human. Healthcare. You may be literally being able to have a designer gene therapy that will cure your genetic disorder like sickle cell or thalassemia. And even warfare. There are an array of disruptive technologies that are poised to change the world and to change war. To explore the developments that will evolve in these areas as we head towards the year 2050. A country that has minimal ground troops, no air power, minimal tanks and artillery, could have a very robust cyber army. Smaller or even rogue players will catch up to some extent in crucial areas with some of the main superpowers, and that could disturb the balance of power. Joining me to help guide us through the future of technology is Daniel Franklin. He's the executive editor of The Economist and the editor of The World In, our publication which each year paints a picture of what we might expect in the year next. Daniel has now set his sights even further into the future, editing a book entitled Megatech, Technology in 2050. It explores the practical, ethical, and philosophical questions raised by the technological advances shaping our society in this century. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, Ken. So, Daniel, tell us, why did you produce the book now? Well, it's a follow-up to an earlier book called Mega Change, which was a broader look at the tectonic shifts taking place in population trends, in in the economy, in politics, in culture, you name it. But I felt that there was a lot more to say on technology, and technology is starting to move particularly fast and to, to move into everything. Every industry is now, in a sense, a technology industry. With that in mind, one of the ways to see how technology will develop into the future is to follow the money. Anne Winblad is a former programmer, software entrepreneur, and founder of Hummer Winblad Venture Partners, a venture capital firm. As a seasoned Silicon Valley investor, she has witnessed firsthand how the landscape for technology firms has evolved over the past 30 years. Here's Ms. Winblad discussing her predictions for the next few decades, which she explains through her theory about waves of investment. A wave is usually, on average, about 10 years. At the beginning of a wave, there are thousands of companies that are invested in. Many minnows enter the wave. You don't even see them because they're deep in the ocean. And at the end of a wave, the winners are the only ones that make it to the shore. Some of the waves have ended with companies like Microsoft, the PC era. Internet 1.0 era had two amazing companies in it, Google and Amazon. The wave that we're in that is coming to an end is a lot of new enterprise software companies, and it also includes companies that are sort of between waves like Facebook. And 
we are probably at the beginning of a new wave in quantum computing, artificial intelligence. So when can we expect the current wave to come into shore? We've seen the word artificial intelligence being used in several of these waves and nothing came to shore. But we began seeing companies bring forward artificial intelligence or machine learning about four years ago. So we're not even halfway through that wave. That was supplemented by the ability to have computer architecture that's much bigger, large amounts of data from the last wave to feed machine learning, and also the capability to have open source components from established companies like Google, Microsoft, and Facebook who would like to end on the next wave as part of the artificial intelligence winners six years out for AI. In the midst of this current wave, we're already starting to see artificial intelligence being applied in innovative ways. It is disrupting and enhancing time-honored practices across many industries. As a result, much of the current conversation about artificial intelligence and humanity explores the idea and the concern that the former will replace the latter. That is to say that AI may replace humans. But what if, rather than competing with each other, humans and machines could combine? We'd help each other to improve and to evolve, both in conceptual thinking and practical construction. That is the future as imagined by Maurice Conti, a designer and technologist at Autodesk, a software design firm whose work is probing the frontiers of human and machine design. I think the possibilities are vastly bigger, more powerful, more profound than the sort of baby steps that we're seeing today. Maurice joins us to explain how this symbiotic relationship will enhance the way that we design, produce, and even live. So if, if you think about it, you know, you have this class of, of computer software called computer-aided design, and it's been around for arguably 40 years or so. And the interesting thing is the computer-aided design up until very recently has never aided a designer at all. And now very recently, uh, we have this new class of software that we call generative design, where the designer and the computer arguably are having a conversation. They're, they're collaborating to reach a design solution. So the designer says, look, here are the problems I need to solve. Here are the goals I have. Here are the constraints that I have to work within. And then the computer goes off and explores every possible design solution that could meet those requirements, gives them back to the designer. The designer says, I like these. I don't like those. Continue iterating on the ones I like. And then together, this sort of computer and human team come up with things that neither could have designed on their own. One of the ways it can do that is by scanning the solution space at an infinite level or quasi-infinite level, better than a human being can, and look at all the different alternatives and options, somewhat like the way that evolution works. What are some of the examples of that in your work? We've done things like redesigned a drone chassis, like a quadcopter chassis. And we told the computer, look, we need this to be as light as possible, as aerodynamic as possible. Here are where the propellers go, and here's where the battery goes and how much it weighs. And the system comes back with an optimized design. We've done components for automobiles, motorcycles. We've been working with Airbus for a few years, and, and they actually have the first generatively designed, additively manufactured aircraft component that will be in flight. This is a cabin partition where the seats for the flight crew bolt to, so it's sort of a critical piece. It's uh, about half the weight as the traditionally designed and manufactured component and is a little bit stronger. 
So we can see where the benefits might come from in terms of individual products, but on a wider scale, how might AI help us improve, say, urban design? That is the perfect problem for a design AI. You can give it the the problem set. You go, look, here is the landscape. Here are the buildings. Here are the challenges that the people face. Go forth and find the optimal layout and so forth. As we have this big trend towards urbanization globally, I think these tools are going to be particularly useful in solving these sort of high-order design challenges. Now, what does this mean for the future of design? Is it the case that we're going to have a world without designers? The computer is very good at solving for certain things and not very good at all for solving for others. So for instance, if you ask the computer to optimize for strength or weight, it's really good at that. If you ask the computer to make something beautiful, it has no idea what you're talking about. And I think it'll be some time before we make much progress in the aesthetic space. But even when we do, all else being equal, the best combination is going to be computational system working with a human. We're, we're very, very different. Artificial intelligence is different than synthetic intelligence. We're not, we're not trying to make intelligences to replace our own or to mimic our own. We're building systems with quote-unquote intelligent behavior that are helpful to us. Many prominent voices are proselytizing that artificial intelligence will spell the end of the human race, a concern that is now fed through into our culture. Welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. We designed them to be trusted with our homes. I'm not even sure that mankind is ready for them. It's like all things that make me human are fading away. Everywhere. One man who disagrees with this view is Professor Luciano Floridi. He's a researcher of computer ethics at the University of Oxford. And Daniel went to find out what we really should be worried about when we think about AI. The main point is not that we are creating some sort of superintelligence, some extraordinary machine that will outsmart us in a sort of intentional, perhaps evil way. That is a topic of engaging and perhaps entertaining science fiction, but it shouldn't keep us awake at night. What we should be losing sleep about is how we are transforming the world into a world that is increasingly friendly to the digital, as perhaps opposed to friendly to uh, human needs, how we are taking away responsibility from our own choices and delegating machines which have no intelligence, no intentionality, no understanding, no meaningful or semantic interactions with the world and therefore making perhaps our life momentarily easier. We're not responsible for the choices, but in the long run, uh, way riskier because somewhere, somehow, a machine will have taken decisions for us. So the the danger is partly that we do this almost without realising it because it happens very gradually. Bit by bit, we create environments that are suitable for machines and help machines work far better than they can otherwise. Sometimes they're necessary for the machines to work at all. But these environments may not be the ones that are always best designed for us humans. Is that right? Indeed, that, that is the issue. And, and it comes in two, let's say, two flavours. Uh, one is that we need to remember that we are incredibly malleable. We're very easily influenced by a bit of nudging, uh, a bit of extra choice, Think of yourself going to a restaurant, not quite knowing what you want to order, and there's someone there constantly, inevitably, all the time, pushing you towards a particular kind of choice. 
you resist once, you resist twice, but then in the end it's so much easier just to, to do what you're told. Now what I'm talking about here is the uh, AI not having any intentionality, but being there as a force that is not flexible, which forces us to be flexible. We adapt to the computer, it's not a computer that adapts to us. That's the first flavor. The other flavor is that by being over-worried about science fictional scenarios, we might be missing real opportunities. We might be not throwing away the baby with the water, as they say. In other words, we might be so concerned, so worried, that some solutions, which are actually perhaps useful in the environment or in job-related tasks, etc., are not even tried because, oh goodness no, maybe we might be evoking some kind of ghost. So, so how do we avoid these pitfalls? In a sense, you let us off one worry, but then you introduce another one, which is in a way more insidious, because it's something that might happen to us gradually and in, in a way with a loss of willpower we succumb to it. What can we do now to guard against that in future? Having a clear or as clear as we can get now project about where the technology should lead us. It, the analogy here is, is with a, a sort of a very fast development which you want to drive in the right direction. You don't want to stop it in case you might want to go even faster if you know where you're going and how much you like where you're going. The question here is therefore, are we really uh, developing a human project for our information society for the 21st century within which all this technology makes sense or are we simply working in a sort of tactical way, responding week by week to what is changing under our eyes? What's the bottom line here? How how optimistic or gloomy should we be about the future under AI which is going to be increasingly among us? The bottom line is that we should be carefully optimistic. Technology always comes with a bias. However, that bias might be a bias for good or a bias for evil. A hand grenade has a bias, but clearly a bias for evil. AI, digital technology, has a bias, but a bias for good. It tendentially tries to make life easier, better, fair for more people. I'm not saying that therefore we just let it go and grow and everything will be fine. It has to be guided, it has to be pruned and shaped. But in and of itself, this is a potentially force for good. We just have to have the governance there that makes all this goodness flourish. We can't let it go as it is and we cannot simply stop it. Does the technology tell us anything new about what it means to be human? Well, I think it forces us to ask that question more insistently. And I've been struck talking about the book in front of audiences that a lot of them quite quickly turn their questions to that very idea of what does it mean for humanity if we can enhance ourselves to such an extent with machines or with fiddling with our genomes? And what does it mean, perhaps even for religion, if we're reaching such a point in technology that we can almost, in some circumstances, play God ourselves? One of the critical areas of technology where we're going to see the biggest splash is in healthcare. What can we expect? A lot will be happening that will transform, I think, the way healthcare is delivered. You yourself know a lot about the impact that big data is likely to have in, in healthcare. I think that's a massive shift in, in a sense. You're computer is going to be the smartest doctor, you could well find that people ask to see the machine and not the human doctor for some purposes in future. But also the extraordinary advances in the efficiency of genome sequencing means that we're going to see uh, drug development, we're going to see personalized or targeted medicine move on in leaps and bounds over the next 30 years. 
I'm Daniel Kraft. I'm a physician scientist. I chair medicine for Singularity University, and I'm founder and chair of Exponential Medicine, a program that looks at how technology can reshape health and medicine across the whole healthcare continuum. Dr. Kraft explained to us that the problem with most current healthcare systems is that they focus more on mitigation, not prevention. Well, if you think about our current healthcare systems, they're much more really based on sick care. The data we get is very intermittent, and so that data often doesn't transmit easily back and forth to your healthcare system. Therefore, we'll quite reactively wait for the heart attack or stroke or lump to be discovered at stage three and stage four. Part of the potential with some of these emerging technologies just to be more continuous, proactive, and participatory, where we all can be part of contributing to healthcare data and even using that in real time to optimize that for taking care of an individual or a city or a whole public health system. Sensors picking up our vital signs and also our behavior will become ubiquitous, something that is known as the era of the quantified self. The vast amounts of data produced will be fed into a wider system where commercial operators and doctors and hospitals and researchers can run analyses on them and then feed them straight back to us. My favorite example of, I think, where that's heading is kind of like the modern car. Modern cars today have three or four hundred sensors. You have no clue about those sensors in most cases. You don't even care about the sensor piston number three and the temperature gauge. What you care about is when that check engine light goes on, which is now driven by more and more artificial intelligence, machine learning, synthesizing, well, there's something going on with your engine, time to take it to the mechanic and be proactive. I think as the technology disappears and the devices become commoditized, it's going to be the smart software layers that can take data from our voice, from our smartphone movement, from our connected homes, our smart mattresses that can track our sleep and give us an understanding of our individual baseline, where we might be on the health spectrum, how to tweak that in smart directions, or if you have a chronic disease like heart disease or diabetes, help manage that in a much more tuned, smart, evidence-based way. Once we shift the medical and economic burden away from mitigation, Dr. Kraft believes we can start to go after diseases proactively. As we shift the incentives to helping people stay healthy or preventing disease, we can hopefully be picking up, let's say, a genetic disorder and using some of the new gene technologies like CRISPR, 10, 20 years from now, 2050, you may be literally being able to have a designer gene therapy that will cure your genetic disorder like sickle cell or thalassemia or even infectious diseases like HIV might be moderated with modified T cells that are resistant to HIV. Organ transplants for folks with organ failure may be 3D printed from your own stem and progenitor cells, but we may be even taking humanized organs from pigs and using those to replace those with damaged or diseased organs. Hopefully some of these disabilities can be cut off early. Of course, with healthier populations, longevity will undoubtedly increase. This may strain existing healthcare systems, but Dr. Kraft believes technology will help us to manage this change too. Uh, we need to think about you know aging in place. We can't put everybody in nursing homes. We can use technology from you know Amazon Echoes that can listen to our home and be healthcare buddies to robotics to other ways to let folks age uh, more appropriately and, and augment not just their brains but their bodies. Now, Daniel, what about the area of military and defense? It seems like warfare is an aspect of society that is also ripe for change. Technology doesn't stand still as far as destructive power is concerned, and there will be 
all sorts of developments from the ability for snipers to shoot much further, more accurately and even perhaps round corners to all sorts of clever materials used for body armour. And I think more disturbingly, perhaps, the possibility that smaller or even rogue players will catch up to some extent in crucial areas with some of the main superpowers, and that could disturb the balance of power, especially in areas such as cyber warfare. There are an array of game-changing disruptive, revolutionary, whatever catchword you want to use to describe them, technologies that are poised to change not just the civilian side, but the military side, to change the world and to change war. I'm uh, Peter W. Singer. I'm a strategist at New America and author of Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. From robotics in terms of hardware to uh, artificial intelligence and autonomy and big data in the software realm, new energy sources, new types of energy weapons, to new modes of manufacturing, to shifts in the biosciences, human performance enhancements that are affecting everything from athletes to special operations soldiers already. One thing I'd point to is what's happened with uh, rifle systems. This is Benjamin Sutherland, a technology correspondent for The Economist. In the last two decades, we've seen that the range of kills has almost doubled. In uh, 2009, a British sniper killed two Taliban and then took out their machine gun at 2,475 meters. The bullets had flown for more than six seconds and they had fallen from the barrel line of the rifle by more than 100 meters. And one of the things that's interesting about that is the sniper was using software that anybody can download to their smartphone to calculate that type of a shot. A lot of the technologies that we have come to think as kind of being part of the Western system are going to become a lot more widespread in coming years and decades. Nevertheless, there are some technologies that are not going to be easy for adversaries of elite Western forces to get their hands on. The U.S. Department of Defense has been putting money into the development of a guided bullet called Exacto. These are systems that basically have guidance systems on the bullet. You can allow a, a sniper, therefore, to not be within line of sight Now that can protect the sniper. You can have essentially a laser that is designating the target and that can be on a drone high above. Armor will also improve dramatically in the coming decades. In a couple ways. One is we're going to see non-Newtonian armors that can allow soldiers to move quickly, to be fairly flexible, they're lighter weight, but with the impact of a bullet they thicken enough to be able to stop that bullet. And we'll also see exoskeletons. The U.S. Special Operations Command is developing a powered system nicknamed the Iron Man suit called Talos, which will be able to provide considerable strength and protection from projectiles. But as Western soldiers become faster, stronger, and better fighters, the risk is that their opponents will simply adapt and turn towards softer targets. As the West deploys more robots or drones and fewer soldiers, and the soldiers that it does deploy are better protected physically with different types of armor, 
I think the number of attacks or forces willing to attack civilian targets instead is going to increase. One of the major shifts in the current balance of power that could come in the next century is that of west to east. One country in particular is driving a substantial amount of change. Peter Singer. There's a lot of exciting work that's going on in China. At a recent military trade show, they showed off everything from armed drones for sale to little machine gun armed robots to other situations. It's things that pop up in the scientific world that then they clearly don't want out there. So a good example would be a professor winning an award for a breakthrough in the kind of technology uh, that will allow you to detect stealth materials. They win the award, and then three days later, the announcement of that award gets scrubbed from the website. We've seen China over the course of you know a little under two generations go from just buying old secondhand Russian gear to copycatting U.S. military planes to working on some pretty game-changing areas. Concepts of how war is fought are also divided, largely between those of the West and East. This axis of ideas could soon tilt, too. Basically, throughout history, there's kind of this back and forth between what they call linear and nonlinear approaches in battle. So think of it as, you know, like a long line of soldiers versus swarming. So the way a Greek phalanx operates versus how Genghis Khan's horde operates. And for the last couple of generations, it's been a, a very linear, direct mode of approach to war. And there's a question as we move towards new technologies like robotics as to whether maybe things like swarming, which weren't possible with manned machines, might be possible with unmanned machines. To put it bluntly, the U.S. and allied system is almost inherently driven towards that large, exquisite, expensive approach and it may set us up for failure in the future. Mr. Singer also believes that it's not just about what technology the nations have, but the way that those technologies are combined that will determine the winners and the losers. So if you think in the past, when the Germans get the Blitzkrieg that they used to you know, conquer most of Europe, it's not that they invented the tank. Actually, it was the British who invented the tank. It's not that they had the most airplanes. Again, that wasn't the case. It's not that they invent the radio. It's the way they bring together the tank, the airplane, and the radio in this new kind of doctrine. And so you can think about the parallel moving forward. It's not going to be who has a robot or the best robot or the most robots. It's who brings that together with autonomy, with big data, with cyber warfare side, and who has sort of the best doctrine for learning from it. It is likely that cyber attacks will continue to grow in frequency, prominence, and destructive capability. Anyone from a lone hacker to a nation state can orchestrate them. But is a cyber attack grounds for war? Our science correspondent Tim Cross spoke to one of the world's leading voices in cybersecurity, Bruce Schneier, to get some answers. Cyberspace being a theater of war has been true since the first Iraqi war. You are going to always see a cyber component in any future actual war. The question that is perplexing policymakers is whether a cyber-only attack, is that itself an act of war, or does it need a war around it? One of the 
other things that sort of distinguishes cyber war from the traditional sort is it seems to be part of this general trend we've seen in the last few decades towards sort of asymmetric power, this idea of levelling the playing field, of allowing a country that in sort of conventional terms is maybe weaker than its opposition to sort of somehow compete on the same level. A country that has minimal ground troops, no air power, minimal tanks and artillery could have a very robust cyber army. You have non-nation state actors that can credibly threaten nations. I remember in 2011, the hacker group Anonymous threatened NATO. Now, living in a world where a bunch of guys in a basement somewhere can threaten a multinational military alliance seems crazy. Yet that's what happened. And you certainly can have actors that are not affiliated with any country, that are just supporters of that country, waging what would be considered acts of war in cyberspace. We saw that in Syria. We saw that in Libya. So there's an enormous potential for cyberspace disrupting traditional power balances in militaries around the world. And if you're one of those militaries, is there anything you can do to sort of prepare for this? I mean, it seems a lot harder to restrict access to computers with an internet connection than it is to restrict access to sort of powerful conventional weapons. How do you prepare for a world like this? Defense is important. Now, defense has a lot of components. There's actual prevention, there's detection response, mitigation, agility, that all of these things give us resilience against attacks. It's not just a matter of building a wall and hoping the bad guys can't climb over it. It's a complex series of different defensive measures. And some of it is entanglement. If a country can't attack our systems without also hurting themselves, that's a form of defense. So the more our internet is commingled with everyone else's internet, the safer we and everyone else will be because no one would take down the resource because we all benefit from it. If by 2050 we arrive at this world where almost everything is computerized and almost everything is therefore hackable, does that mean we end up with a sort of new, higher-tech version of the Cold War-style mutually assured destruction where everybody's vulnerable and perversely because of that, no one ever wants to launch an attack? In the nuclear arms race, only the big nations could participate. I mean, this is an arms race where... Anybody can participate, where weapons are easy to hide, where capabilities are easy to mask, where defenses are, are complex and hard to know if they're going to work. There's a lot more uncertainty, and that it really makes it more unstable. In a sense, we'd all be safer if attack was obviously easier than defense, because we would know what's going on. But I'm afraid it's not going to be that simple. There's going to be more of a parity, which will mean it'll be harder for nations to know what the capabilities of other nations are, harder for them to know if they are adequately defended, and that's what fuels an arms race. The world in 2050 will be quite different from today, from artificially intelligent design to everyday genome editing to a new world of warfare. All of these transformational changes in technology will produce a very new society for us to live in and to exercise our very human values. So, Daniel, to finish... I'd like to ask you, on balance, do you think that technology is going to create more problems or will it alleviate them? Look, on balance, I think the book is a, a fairly upbeat read. I think you feel excited by the possibilities ahead, but it's very also clear-headed and open-eyed about the 
the problems and the issues ahead, the destructive power we have given ourselves, and the fact that there are always unintended consequences, and we must expect those too. Well, Daniel, thank you. Thank you, Ken. That's the end of this clairvoyant episode of Babbage. If you have any comments about the show or questions for Daniel or myself, do send them through to radio at economist.com. The book Daniel edited, made up of contributions from economist journalists called Megatech Technology in 2050, is out now. So if your interest has been piqued, please pick up a copy and read more. In London, this is The Economist. 